If you have a Bible, if you'd turn to Psalm 32, please. Let me ask everybody a question here. If I asked everybody to take out a piece of paper and to write down what makes them blessed, I mean, what do you think that paper would look like? What would be the first things you would write down? And I think it would probably tend to weigh a little more heavily on the material side of things, you know, health, nice car, good job, house to live in, you got a great family, friends to fellowship with, you got a church, whatever. And so we'll always hear a lot of times during testimony time, God's given me a financial blessing or God blessed me with favor with my boss or customers. And we like to sing the song, I am blessed, I am blessed. Every day of my life, I am blessed when I wake up in the morning and so on. I'm not going to have me sing that right now. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with proclaiming God's faithfulness to meet our needs. But, but listen to what the Bible describes as a blessed man or woman. And these are from the Psalms. Psalm 1-1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 41. Blessed is he that considers the poor. Psalm 65-5. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and cause us to approach unto thee. Psalm 106.3, Blessed are they that keep justice, and he that does righteousness at all times. Psalm 112, Blessed is the man that fears the Lord. Psalm 119.2, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. That's all spiritual stuff there. So there's nothing wrong with being glad and praising the Lord for material blessings that God gives us. I'm not saying anything about that, right? But I think our greater desire really should be for spiritual blessings. You know, Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And so what's Paul praising God for? He's saying, Blessed be God. Praise God that he's blessed us with spiritual blessings. And I think that's what we should be heading for. We need the other things, and God will provide for that. That's what the faith message is all about. We can trust him to heal us, provide our needs, take care of us, so that we can be spending our time seeking first, seeking those spiritual blessings that are the eternal blessings. So let's look here. I want to look at what I would consider the greatest blessing that God can give us. It's right here, Psalm 32. So we'll begin reading in verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. And for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when you may be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto him. You are my hiding place. You will preserve me from trouble. You will compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. 
Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Oh, be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. You know, David received a lot of blessings in his lifetime. A lot of blessings. And he was a rich king, had a lot of wives, but none compared the full forgiveness, nothing compared to the full forgiveness that God granted him after he had sunk into the depths of gross sin. Because most scholars will agree that this psalm here was written after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, murdered. And David did all that. He was a regenerate believer. This wasn't before he knew the Lord. This was after he knew the Lord. This is after God had changed his heart and given him salvation, like us, is when this happened. He had experienced the true joy of salvation, and yet how did he sin this grievously? How could a God, a man that God said is a man after my own heart, turn his back on God and spit in his face, which is in essence what God said he did? And well, all I can say is he did. And if we think we're not capable of that, except for the grace of God, any of us is capable of that. Believe me. If David could do it, and that's why he's set forth here as an example and he paid a tremendous price for his sin, didn't he? Paid a tremendous price. But listen, when you read Psalm 51, you don't have to turn there. You can hear the sincere and deep repentance that he experienced. Listen, he says this, Psalm 51.1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And he is pleading with God for his mercy and his cleansing. And I'll tell you, when you think about what he's saying there, he is not in any way. David was a righteous, holy person. You don't hear him bringing any of that up at this point because there's nothing for him to bring up. He's just committed one of the most unrighteous acts and deeds and kept it concealed over a period of time that you could imagine. And all he has to plead now, there's nothing in him. He sees nothing but putrid sin. And he's pleading God's tender mercies, his loving kindness. Oh, please wash me. That's what I need. If he didn't have that to plead God's mercies and loving kindness, it had been all over for him, just like with us. It had been his eternal death at that point. So now, though, we come to Psalm 32, and he has experienced that forgiveness. He's experienced that cleansing. He's experienced that mercy and loving kindness of God. He's consciously experienced it after that sin, and he's proclaiming the blessedness of it. That's what he's saying here. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He's saying, I'm that man. I'm telling you, I know what I'm talking about. So in Psalm 51, David, he prays there. He says, God, give me, we sing the song, give me a clean heart, a renewed spirit. And he prays, God, just please restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And he says in that Psalm 51, he says, you do that for me, Lord. Then he says, then after that happens, I will teach transgressors thy ways. I'm going to help other people that have fallen into the same pit I did. Help them get out of there and get back to restore. And that's what we have here 
in Psalm 32. He's instructing us. He's given us some instruction from his personal experience. And so he says, blessed. And blessed means that someone superior, someone greater than you has bestowed a favor on you. They're blessing on you. That's what it means to be blessed. And so when people go around and you'll hear Tim Tebow on TV, oh, I'm blessed. I'm so blessed. Well, what's he saying? He's saying, God's given me, and when we say that, God has given us favor that we don't deserve. That's what we're saying when we're saying we're blessed. And by far, I'm saying the greatest favor that God has ever given us is the forgiveness of our sins. But listen, you'll never understand that unless you understand what sin looks like in God's eyes. How putrid it is, how evil it is, how wicked it is, and what you deserve. And then that forgiveness will mean something to you. And so David in these first two verses here, verses 1 and 2, he uses three words to describe sin. He could have just used one, but he uses three. And the first one he said, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And transgression means you step over the line in rebellion. And the best illustration I ever heard of this, Paris Reedhead used to say they had a farm, they had a lot of cattle, and they had a fence set up, and they had a no trespassing sign put on there. So the line was set. And he said these hunters would come in their truck, no regard for them, their farm, or their cattle, and would take their guns and just blew holes in their no trespassing sign, cut the fence, trampled it down, went in and hunted, and all their cattle get out. And that's a description of what transgression is. That's, that's what it's saying. You know the line, and you're just like, I have no regard for it. And that's what sin is. That's what we do when we sin against God. We will transgress him. He also uses the common word for sin. He says, whose sin is covered at the end of verse 1. And that is just a lifestyle. You decide my lifestyle. I'm just going to live. I don't really care what God thinks about what I'm doing. You may even go to church, may be a nice person, but you're just living a lifestyle that is not on the true path that God has set. And it's that word is used, a good way to illustrate that is Sodom and Gomorrah. You want to talk about a lifestyle that was off the true path. And God said this, it says, And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin, that's the same word, is very grave. That sin, they're off the path, their lifestyle. That's an obvious one there, isn't it? And he also uses... The word in verse 2, blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity. And that word iniquity there means a distortion, a twisting, a perversion of what is right. That's what that word iniquity means. It's someone that's got a twisted heart. And they'll take what is right and they'll twist it and distort it to suit their ends. And that's what David did in that whole scheme of Bathsheba and Uriah. And I'd say those terms pretty well describe what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah. He was a transgressor. He knew the law. He had to write it out. And he knew that adultery was a line that he should never cross. And so was murder. Should have never crossed that line. But yet the Bible says David rebelled against God's law. Listen. Listen, here's what Nathan said to him. These are strong words coming to David who had a heart for the Lord, but he was backslidden. He was backslidden. The king, David, the one that brought the ark back. Terrible backslidden condition. Listen to what Nathan said to him. He says, says this to David. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord 
to do evil in his sight. He didn't just say you're a sinner. He says you've despised the commandment of the Lord to do what was evil in his sight. He said you've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be thy wife. And you have slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. David was a transgressor. He violated his conscience in what he knew to be the law of God. Just like those guys blowing that sign away, I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what David did at that point in his life. And he was also a sinner. Practiced a lifestyle far from God's true path. He lived in that sin for over a year. It wasn't like it just happened one weekend and Nathan confronts him the next. Now, this was a long-standing sin that he was living in. And his iniquity, his perversion, was the hypocrisy in covering it all up. Very devious. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So his act with Bathsheba was transgression, sin, and iniquity. And sin in the Bible, it's a putrid sickness is the way the Bible describes it. And David, though, he's clearly seen his sin in all its ugliness, and he saw the hell and the punishment that he deserved. And that's why he proclaims here at the beginning of Psalm 32, oh, man, I knew how evil I was and had become and shouldn't have been. I knew better, and yet God has had mercy on me. And he says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit is no guile. He's saying, God has shown me favor that I can't describe and don't deserve. And so what did he say happened to his sin? He's saying it was forgiven, that transgression, that stepping over the line in my total disregard, my despising God and his law. That word forgiven means it's lifted away as you would lift off a burden. It was taken away from him. Taken away, forgiven, was the first thing. And then he said it was covered. Oh, yeah. Looking at that putrid sin, and he says now it's been covered, propitiated by the blood of the Lamb. Blood has covered that sin. So when God sees me in anger, that he should? No, he doesn't see that anymore. He sees what? He sees that blood. And God says when I see the blood I will pass over you, that blood of the lamb. And that's what's going on here. It's been covered. His sin has been covered. And his iniquity, it says, is no longer imputed. That means it's taken off his account. Oh, yeah, when the great court was going to adjourn on judgment day, and it will be for those that aren't trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to be a bad sentence. But David said, no, now when they look on my records and all that, it's like it's not there to be found. Not going to be imputed to me. That twisted, devious sin I committed, no longer there. That was me. Oh, man. I got people raising their hands. That was them. And that's what we see there. The slate was wiped clean. And I'm saying, I think blessed for David was probably an inadequate word to describe how he felt in his heart. You could see somebody coming up to him. David, how you doing? Oh, I'm blessed beyond words. Well, why are you saying that? Because you're a king and rich and you have beautiful wives and he would have said, oh, no. Listen, none of that matters. That's not why I'm saying that. I'm forgiven. That's what he's saying here. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. You know, there's a cemetery. It's not far outside of New York City. And there's a headstone and it has engraved on it a single word, forgiven. The message is simple. 
The person didn't have their date of birth on there. There's no other words. There's only their name and one other word, forgiven. And that's the greatest word, though, that it can be applied to any man or woman, anyone in this room. And really, you get right down to in the end, that is all that matters. It is all that matters. So let me say, how much do we treasure the forgiveness that we say God has given us? And it, does it still bring us to the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ in thankfulness and love? Because I'm saying, I've been in this walk for 30 years. And I'm saying after 30 years, you can just start to take some things for granted. Even the fact of what you were and the, the fact that you're forgiven. And we're forgiven, I would hope, on a daily, weekly basis. But if you would put something there in Psalm 32 and look over in Luke 7. Beginning in verse 36. And we read, And one of the Pharisees desired him, Jesus, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. And now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he was a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this is that touches him. She is a sinner. Ah, Jesus answering, said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. So Simon's getting set up. And he said, Well, Master, say on. He says, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? And Simon answered, I can answer that one, he says. He said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, you have judged rightly. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you didn't anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore, I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? He ignores them. And he said unto the woman, Thy faith have saved thee. Go in peace. Just imagine this woman was wicked. Everybody in town would know this woman is a sinner, a loose living woman. She had to have a long-standing evil lifestyle that everybody knew about her, had a reputation, and most probably thought especially these Pharisees, this woman is unredeemable. No help in her. She's a hardened sinner. Yet, you know what she knew? If you go back and read, she was probably one of those that came down to the River Jordan and saw John the Baptist. And John the Baptist points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe she was there. Behold, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. God opened her eyes to see who the Lord Jesus was. This is the one that can help me. Oh, I'm lost. I know the law. I'm part of Israel. 
The law condemns me for who I am. She knew that. They're not giving all the religious people at that point. They're giving her no hope. But here comes one that has given this wicked woman hope. The Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus points to her, and he points her out to the Pharisees as someone who knew forgiveness. Look at that. It says in verse 44, it says he turns unto the woman. He points her out. She's laying there, probably feeling ashamed the way they're treating her. But he says, look on this woman. Look on her, Simon. This sinner that you despise, that you say has no hope. Look on this woman. And now let me tell you what she's done. He said, you know, I came into your house. You're supposed to wash my... You gave me no water for my feet at all. But yet this woman here that you despise, she's wiped my feet with her tears. Flooded the tears coming down from her eyes. And he says, you didn't give me a kiss, a friendly greeting, but yet she's not only kissed me, and he uses the word as for repeatedly kiss. She's repeatedly kissed my feet. She's ministered to his feet. And he says, you didn't give me the typical anointing that you would give on a person's head when they enter in, but this woman has not ceased to anoint my feet since I'm here. He says, so let me tell you something, Simon, about this woman that you despise. Her sins are many. He says, I'm not denying that, but listen, she's not hiding them either. She's brought them out in the open, and she's broken in repentance at my feet. That's what was going on. And her many sins are forgiven. And you think it's not because she loved him. The love shows her faith. She realized this is the one that has given me forgiveness. Oh, I love him for that. That's what the love's all about. You don't love to try to earn God's forgiveness. No, the love comes because by faith you see what he's done for you. The free gift, the free grace and forgiveness he's given should bring out a love in your heart. That's what he's saying here. And imagine, though, I could put myself in that woman's shoes. I was as bad as her. I had a reputation before I became a Christian. But just imagine you're that woman and you're there and you're broken in his feet. Everyone in that room hates you but one person. One person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And imagine you're here and you hear what's written there in verse 48. The Lord Jesus Christ. Hear him say that to you. Thy sins, your sins are forgiven. Saying that to you. Personally. And then he goes on to say in verse 50, your faith has saved you and he tells you, Go in peace. Oh, man. What would that be like? But he is speaking that to us, isn't he? It's right there in the Bible. It's the same difference. He's not going to say anything different if he was there in person. That's what we've all received. We're no better than that woman. And she would have been like David after she left there. I guarantee it. She would have been, I am so blessed. Blessed is the ones whose transgressions have been forgiven. That's what she would have been thinking, right? God has been so merciful to me. How great of a sinner I was. And yet God is counting none of that against me now. What grace I've just experienced. That's what she would have been saying. She would have been just like David. She could have written Psalm 32. And let's go back to that. So David moves on. 
He had said in Psalm 51, I'll give instruction to transgressors. And he does that right here, beginning in verse 3, from his own personal experience. And he starts off saying, when I kept silence. I kept silence. So there was a time after David's sin, he tried to keep it from God. He kept silent. He refused to admit his sin. So he's trying to live his life as king like he has not done anything wrong. But he is miserable miserable covering up his sins and look what he says there my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long and by his bones he's talking about the strength of his body he's saying his inward strength he's just like an old man that's what concealing this sin has done to him his conscience is accusing him and he's feeling the terror of judgment and it is tearing him up on the inside that's what happens to a sinner or a saint that's backslidden. So despite his outward actions, he knows he's wrong on the inside. And he goes on to say there is no let up. Look what he goes on to say. For day and night, verse 4, thy hand was heavy upon me and my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Hand was heavy upon me. Like one man said, if God's finger was pressed on us, that would be bad enough, right? That would crush us. But to have his hand heavy on you day and night? Huh. His spiritual life, it is totally dried up. He says there it is like the drought of summer. And man, when we get it here and we start getting towards the end of summer, Everyone's yard looks great now. Even if you got weeds, it all looks nice and green and just keep it cut and you're good. But man, just wait until time moves on. Every summer we go through that period where there's no rain and that summer drought comes and things just look dried up. Just makes you thirsty looking outside with that heat. And David's saying, that's the way I am inside. I've cut myself off from God, my source. And I'm trying to conceal it. He's saying I'm miserable. That's what he's telling everybody. And maybe that's somebody in here today. Maybe you're involved in a sin that you've been covering up. And no one knows about it but you and God. David probably hit it pretty good. And maybe you are too. And yet his hand is heavy upon you. And the weight of your sin is something you just want to be freed of. You know, maybe it's internet pornography, because that is a plague in the USA. You feel unclean, you know what you're doing is wrong. And you probably have done a good job of concealing that, but God knows, and you know, and it's drying you up. And you're carrying that burden around, and maybe you're afraid God won't forgive you because you've been doing it so long. Or maybe you're drinking regularly, and it started off with just a little wine at dinner, but now, you always need more to keep calm down. And it's gotten to be a problem. And I know that's happened. Maybe you're a young person. Maybe you're a teenager here that's confessed the Lord and been baptized. And you're stealing from your parents. And you're pretty good about it. And you haven't found out about it yet. But your conscience is bothering you. Been bothering you for a long time. And you're having trouble sleeping at night. Or it could just be, maybe, you know, I just really don't have a love for the Lord at all. I've just let that go by. 
And it's just no joy in serving him. And I just keep busy doing things while they're not sinful in themselves. But honestly, in my heart, I have no desire to pray, to read the Bible, to witness to anybody. And it's just the weight I've been carrying on. And so David here, he's instructing us, isn't he? If that's the case with you, he's instructing us. He says, I'm going to teach transgressors the way out of that pit. And that's what we're here to do today. Not to keep you in there. Look at verse 5. Here's the answer to that. David said, when I was going through all that and concealing my sin, here's what I finally did. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, unto God. In my iniquity, I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And he says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. David said, oh, there came a point. I wished I'd have done this a year before. But I got tired of being a hypocrite, tired of hiding my sin, tired of living under this crushing weight of my conscience and this condemnation and guilt. I finally got tired of that, David said. And he should have done it sooner. But it says he acknowledged his sin. He brought it out into the open. My iniquity, he says, I have not hid that perverse thing I did. It had been hidden all that time. He said, I've been so ashamed of it. But he says, I brought it out into the open. You know, there's an old movie, The Exodus, and these people had this illness, and his doctor's treating it, and he would point those kids, they had these lesions on them. And he said, the thing to do is you point them towards the light of the sun. It brings healing. And that's what we're talking about here. That sin, keeping it concealed is just going to keep it putrid. It's got to be exposed. Bring it out into the light. And then healing can come. Deliverance can come. Your burden can be lifted. That's the way it works. And David says, I've been so ashamed, but I'm tired of hiding. And he says he confessed his transgressions. And he says, to the Lord is who he confessed his transgressions. Why did he have to confess them? And why didn't he just say, hey, I realized I'm wrong, and I'm just going to start doing what's right? Why didn't he do that? You know, his confession, we all know, God knows everything. And us confessing our sins, we're not giving him any information. Now, what we have to remember is God is a personal being. And David sinned against God and affected their relationship. How many times did Brother Hamilton say, and he's exactly right, salvation is not just bowing a knee, coming to church, doing all. It's a relationship, and it is, with a living being, the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You make a commitment to a living being. And he's affected that relationship. And confession needs to happen, whether it's with God or with each other, for relationships to be restored. Words need to be spoken. So David had to confess his transgressions, not just to others, he says, but to the Lord, because God was the offended party in this. And he was the one that David had despised and rebelled against. In Psalm 51, David wrote this, For I acknowledge my transgression. He said, And my sin is ever before me. And he went on to say to the Lord, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He had to make that confession to the Lord. You know, the question I've always asked when I've read that, well, he says against thee, thee only have I sinned. Didn't he also sin against Uriah, take his wife, and murdered him in cold blood? Well, sure he did. 
But what we're saying here is we need to see that our sin is primarily and foremost against God our Father. Because he is the one we've rebelled against and his creation, if it's others, are who we've hurt. And that is primarily who our repentance is. Now, sure, we need to make things right with other people. Not saying that. We need to be like David. It's against thee and thee only have I sinned. But listen, when we come clean totally and throw all guile and deceit away and come before God and just admit that, not just that we're sinners, not just admit your sins, but no, I've come to the Lord, I've lied to this person. I have a wicked heart. I plotted how I could deceive them. That's what you have to tell the Lord. God, I was wrong, and my sin was evil. I'm at guilty, and I just plead for your mercy. That's what we have to do. And I would say, how does God respond to that kind of honesty and repentance? How does he respond to that? Look at the end of verse 5. He says, Thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. God freely forgave David for his sin. And it doesn't just say his sin, does it? Look at what it says. It says, for the iniquity of my sin. And like I alluded to earlier, his sin was so devious. That's what he's talking about, the iniquity, the twisted, perverted sin that I committed. How wicked it was. He sleeps with Bathsheba. Well, that's bad enough. Sleeps with the guy's wife. But then he calls Uriah back from battle, pretends to be his buddy with his arm around him, come to the castle, come and eat and drink with me, buddy, Uriah, and gets him drunk. The whole thing's a setup, getting back with his wife, so it looks like he's the one that got her pregnant. And guess what? God's hand was in that, and it didn't work because Uriah was a righteous man. He's like, I can't go down there and be with my wife when all of my men out there at the battle, they don't have that same opportunity. That's not right. I'm not going to do it. And Dan was like, oh, man, you're not playing the game. You're not helping me out here at all. So what does he do? This is how twisted we're saying. He's saying, God, he realizes how wicked he was. He says, all right, Uriah, listen, I, I want you to take this letter, sealed letter. Just take it to Joab and be a good soldier and all that. And what is this letter that he's given and pats him on the back? Lord bless you. The Lord be with you. And all time, Uriah's carrying his own death sentence that David, his friend, just gave him. I mean, that is twisted. Hey, is that the Joab? Joab reads it, all right, you're supposed to send Uriah and all those guys up to the front of the battle and have everybody withdraw and leave Uriah there alone so he can be killed. That's his orders, and that's what happened. See how wicked it is, what he did? Terrible. And yet he says in verse 5, when I acknowledge that, when he brought it out to the open and didn't hide it anymore and confess my transgressions, he says, Lord, however great that was, you forgave that, the iniquity of my sin. The deviousness of it. I'll never hear about that again. Other people weren't going to let him off the hook, but God forgave him. That's the mercy of God. That's how great of love and mercy God has had on all of us. Because all of us have been devious in sin. I don't care if you grew up in this church or not. You don't have to do drugs and sleep around to be devious. Right? And yet God will have mercy on us and forgive us. Wow. So David was such a hypocrite, and the stain of his sin was dark, yet God forgave that iniquity. And that's, like I said, that's the kind of God we serve. He's the kind of God, he says, I don't delight in judgment, but I delight in mercy. And he really does. Ezekiel says this, Ezekiel 18, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death 
of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. And God is pleading through the prophet. He goes on to say, turn ye, turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's the Lord's heart. Came to seek and save that which is lost. But the key is what? It's confession and transparency. That's a sign of true repentance right there. In John 1, we know this. It says, if we say that we have no sin, if we're not going to admit it and bring it out to the open, he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what God will do. Whatever it is, we just got to bring it before him and be honest about what's happened and not try to conceal it in any way. I'd like you to turn, you're not that far away, over to Proverbs 28. I quote this a lot, but I'd like us to see it today. Proverbs 28, 13. This is what we're talking about right here. This sums it up in one verse. He that covers his sin shall not prosper. We just saw that with David and all the inner turmoil he went through. But look what he goes on to say. But whoso will confess and do what? Repent, forsake them. Repent, turn from your sins. You can't live in them still. But whoever will confess and forsake them shall have what? Mercy. That's a promise from God. Amen? Well, let's go back to Psalm 32. So, you know, it's funny. He, he has several selahs here at the end of these sections. And he has one just for this verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. And I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. It's almost like the fact of how great a sinner he was and how much mercy that God has shown him. It's so overwhelming. He just has to take a break here and praise and worship the Lord. I mean, have you ever felt that way? I mean, I have. I'm sure you have. Where you just realize, man, I know who I was inside, even if everyone else didn't. But God has had such grace and mercy on me, I've got to just stop and sing. And there's this old hymn. So Selah means to pause. Listen to this verse out of this old hymn. It says this, pause, my soul, adore and wonder. Ask, oh, why such love to me? Grace has put me in the number of my Savior's family. Hallelujah. Thanks eternal thanks to thee. He's saying, I just got to be in awe and wonder, adore and wonder, and ask, why such love to me? You've put me in my Savior's family. Eternal thanks. That's that woman, Luke 7. That should be us here. Amen. He goes on to say in 6a, verse 6, for this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when you may be found. So listen, these words of David, when you see here, no matter how low you are, God will forgive you. He'll forgive you no matter what you've done if you truly repent and bring it out. And that's a great encouragement to the godly, all of us, to seek the Lord in forgiveness and prayer. So it'd be hard to be a greater sinner than David was, to be more devious than he was. It'd be awful hard. So he's saying there, he's going to forgive all of our transgressions, great or small. Because it doesn't get much greater than David's. And all we need to do is seek God for forgiveness in prayer. He's saying, that's what he's saying there in verse 6. For this, because of what I just said, everyone that is godly will pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest 
be found. So a righteous person is going to do what? They're going to keep their tabs short, as they say. They're not going to be living a long time in sin before they go to the Lord. Daily, we should be going to the Lord and getting our tabs straightened out. If we need to ask for forgiveness, don't be living in that sin. Because you can become hardened in it. Won't let sin go confess. Because there's a warning here in verse 6. There's a warning because it says, In a time when you may be found. And that is implying what? That there comes a time when God can't be found. Spurgeon said this, he said, between the time of sin and the day of punishment, mercy rules the hour and God may be found. So the time a person sins or is living in sin and until the day of judgment, in between then, mercy rules. God's holding out his hand, come unto me, repent. Come unto me, all you that are heavy laden, like Terry shared earlier. But then he went on to say, but once the sentence has gone forth, Pleading will be useless. So the godly will pray when God can be found. But the ungodly, they're going to be like those when it says the master has risen up and shut the door. And they will begin to stand out. And they'll be knocking on the door, pleading, open unto us. And he will answer, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Too late. And that's what we're seeing here in verse 6. And a time when you may be found, because there may become a time when it's too late. So instead of forgiven, being the word that is on your tombstone, you're going to have your name there and it will say, too late. You don't want that to happen. If you're in here and you don't know the Lord and God's speaking to you today, because today is the day you've heard his voice through his word. But like Terry said, it doesn't have to be that way because mercy's extended today. And you can be the one that will say, like that woman, you've heard the voice of Jesus say to you, thy sins are forgiven. Thy faith have saved thee. Go in peace. Or what he said to the man that was sick of palsy when the four came to him, the guy's obviously needing healing. But Jesus said, son, be of good cheer because I'm going to give you the one thing that really only matters. Be of good cheer, he said, thy sins are forgiven thee. That's what he told that guy. That's what he needed most of all. He goes on to say in verse 6, For everyone that is godly will pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found, because surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh him. And so he's saying, hey, seek God's forgiveness. Get yourself right with him, because when the floods come, and they are coming, and the floods are going to be coming here to America. But he's saying the person that's repented and gotten their sins under the blood of Jesus, they'll be safe. The pardon of sins, it guarantees something here. Forgiveness guarantees you that mercy will be shown to you and God will protect you. He goes on to say in verse 7, you are my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. You will compass me about with songs of deliverance. And so God will be our hiding place and preserve us from trouble. And one thing that I think is interesting that someone pointed out, when you look here in verse 7, listen to what he's saying. The same God that he had prayed to earlier, had talked about earlier, his hand was heavy upon him. It's not that relationship anymore now that he's had that restored, is it? So the God whose hand is heavy upon him, now he's saying he's his hiding place to preserve him from trouble, encompass him about with songs of deliverance. 
That's what will happen. That's the result of repentance and honest confession and full forgiveness. God says, I'll create a circle around his forgiven trial and put him in the middle of it. And what's that circle going to be? Songs of deliverance. You're going to be right in the middle of that, a hedge of protection. And that's what you have down in verse 10. He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. It shall compass him about. When you're right with God, everywhere you turn and look, it can be trouble all around you, but there's deliverance and mercy all the way surrounding you, everywhere. That's what he's saying. You can't get in trouble. They can't get to you. Now, they may persecute you, steal their goods, but they can't get to you. That's what he's saying. <laughs> they shall not come nigh unto him. So not only does he say he'll protect us, give us forgiveness, and after that he will protect us, but he also says he will guide us. Verse 8, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eyes. And listen, in these last days, we are going to need wisdom and guidance and not just protection. So, right, if our heart's right with God, God promises to instruct us and teach us where we should go. He clearly promises that he himself will do that. I think we're going to need, when things start falling apart, the economy's collapsing, things are in persecutions coming, we're going to need, Lord, I don't know what to do. Should I flee? Should I stay? We're going to need that kind of wisdom. And God here promises that he will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go and guide thee with thine eye. Guide thee with thine eye. Literally, that means I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And it's the idea of one that's telling another what to do in order to reach a certain place. But he says, I'm going to watch you and make sure you get there. I'm not going to let you go wrong. It's like you know, you give your little child, you want him to take something up to the neighbor up the street, and you give him the directions, you have the, the little boy or girl repeat it back to you, and you send them out the front door. But what's the mom doing the whole time? She's watching out the window as the kid's walking up the street, and if that kid takes the wrong turn, she's going to be opening that door and embarrassing him. She's going to be yelling at him, no, 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 go over there. But her eye is on him to make sure he's going the right way, and that's what God says he will do with us. He will guide us with his eye on us. So just like with Ruth, he's got his eye on her the whole time. He's instructing her and guiding her, and he's the sovereign God of the universe who loves us. He's going to watch out for us. But the whole key to all of this is what? We've got to have our hearts right. Five verses talking about having that forgiveness. That is the basis for God doing all these things for us right here. But he will. He's got a Ways and Means Committee. You know, we just read with the family the other night, Acts 16. When you read Acts 16, at the beginning of that chapter, so we're saying God will guide us and make sure we're going the right way. Two times Paul is going to go evangelize over towards Asia, Asia Minor. And the Holy Spirit twice stops him. No, you're not going that way. No, you're not going that way. And, so, and then what does he do? All of a sudden, Paul has a vision, a man from Macedonia begging him, come over here, give us the words of life. So God's given him direction the whole time. And that's what we'll need. It may be the Holy Spirit inside saying, no, don't go over to that place there. And it may be that that night you get a vision and this is where I do want you to go. And God has ways, doesn't he? It may be when Paul and them were praying about where they should be as missionaries, it says the Holy Ghost spake. So somebody prophesied in the midst of that while they're fasting and seeking direction. And God gave direction separate Paul and Barnabas for the work of the ministry. 
And that's what we'll need, and that's what we'll get in these last days. But he goes on and warns in verse 9, he says, but listen, y'all, don't be like a mule or a horse. Don't be like a senseless animal. That's what he says in verse 9. He says, but be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. He's saying, David's like, don't be like I was back in verses 3 and 4, where I wouldn't confess my sin, I'm keeping it in, I'm acting like a hypocrite, trying to act like nothing's wrong. He says, don't be like that. Because then, if you're going to be like that, you know, you got to, they're talking about bits and bridles. So those animals are, they act like they have no sense. They won't be directed in a right way. And so you've got to force them where they want to go. And David said, God will do that if he has to. If you're his child, he did that with me. His hand was heavy on me. Sent Nathan the prophet to me. He'll get it out of you. He said, but don't be like that. Let God guide you with his eye. Be sensitive to him. Keep your heart right with him. It doesn't, don't be like an animal that has to be led around. That's what he's telling us there. Don't be like brute beast. And he goes on in verse 10, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. And so we know just briefly that many sorrows shall be to the wicked. Those that live in unrepentant sin and don't know the Lord, they live a hard life. That's saint or sinner. If one of us in here gets backslidden like David did, you're going to have a hard life. Proverbs 13, 15 says, The way of transgressors is hard. And in verse 21 of that same chapter, it says, Evil pursues sinners. You live a sinful life, evil is hot on your tail. You don't have that compassion circling around like the righteous do. And Isaiah 57 says this, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. So whether you're wicked, backslidden, whatever, there's no true joy, no real peace. And David was that way right here. He experienced all that as a backslidden person. But mercy will surround those that trust in the Lord, but sorrow with no hope surrounds those that don't know the forgiveness and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. A great man of God said this, he said, sorrows of conscience, of disappointment, of terror are the sinner's sure heritage in time. But I would agree with Brother Murphy. It doesn't have to be that way for anyone in this room. It doesn't have to be that way. Because he goes on to say in verse 10, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. So as Christians... It doesn't matter what the storm is around us. We can still know that God's mercy is there to preserve us and to help us in time of trouble. And so we've got to cling to the Lord in times of trouble. We've got to be like saran wrap that you just can't get off your hand because we're clinging to the Lord that tight. Praying to him, keeping our hearts right with him, and he'll preserve us. Now, I thought this was good. This young boy was reading this text right here, Isaiah 32.10, to his grandfather. And here's how the conversation went. His grandfather says, mark that text. Richard Atkins said to his grandson Abel, who was reading the 32nd Psalm, he says, mark that text where it says, he that trusts in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. And he tells his grandson this. He said, I read that in my youth and believed it. And he says, now I read it in my old age, and thank God I know it to be true. 
And the old guy said, oh, it is a blessed thing in the midst of the joys and sorrow of the world able to trust in the Lord. And that's what we could say. Amen. You walk with the Lord, the longer you walk with the Lord, you realize, oh, we trust in him. Mercy will compass us about. And that can be our testimony. So verse 11, he says, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous. Shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. And so who are the upright? Who are the righteous? It's those that trust in God are willing to confess their sins honestly and openly to him. They will be the ones seeking the Lord. They will be the ones that are forgiven by him, protected by him that we talked about in this psalm, instructed by him, and he is the one that will guide them. That's the ones he's talking about here in verse 11. And it'll be a response. That's what we get here. It's a progression you see there in verse 11. First, there is gladness in the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. And then it says there'll be rejoicing. Isn't that what it says? Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. And then it climaxes with shouts of joy. And why? Because, listen, when you're the righteous in that way, you know what it is to have a clear conscience and sin confessed and that everything is all right with God. And that causes you Hey, I want to shout this out. Praise God. <laughs> Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, we could sing. For the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall I draw water out of the wells of salvation. That should be the song in our heart. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Amen. <laughs> So let's get back to where we started from. Who is the man that is blessed? Is it the man with the Rolls Royce? The man with two houses paid for? The man with the bigger barns that are full? The man that plays professional sports? Is that the man that is blessed? David said, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. And we're having communion today. Who is the source of that blessed condition? Who has provided that grace that we have there? It's the one we're going to remember today when we have the bread and the cup, our Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember back in verses 1 and 2, what did David's sin consist of? Transgression and iniquity. That was all of our sins, not just his. All of our sin is like David. And listen, here's the great Isaiah 53, the great chapter of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And listen carefully to see if you're included. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't have to bear it. He's borne it for us. God has laid our twisted, perverted, sinful transgression on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for us in his love. And so if you burdened with sin today, or you come in here burdened with sin today, come to the cross and let your burden roll away. 
Look to the cross and see that the price has been paid for your sin. All of us need to do that. We need to be looking towards the cross. That's how Charles Spurgeon got saved. He was a young teenager, came into this meeting, said the guy couldn't preach a lick. But he kept quoting this one verse, Look unto me, all ye ends of the earth, and be saved. And he kept saying, look unto me, look unto the cross. And Spurgeon said he could see the cross then. And he could see that it was for him. And that his sins could be forgiven. It was for him. And that's the cure, is looking to the cross to see that the Lord Jesus has suffered for your sins. The ones you committed this morning, this week, or maybe it's your entire life. And we just all, we all have to trust in his mercy and confess our sins and be honest with God. And he will pardon us just like he did David here in Psalm 32. He'll cover that sin with his blood and wipe our slate completely clean, whiter than snow. That's how we can stand. Now let me close with this hymn. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is a flowing crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, Freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? And the chorus is grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Who is the blessed man or woman? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Amen? Amen. Bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, that you'll open all of our eyes and just return all of our hearts, Lord, to just see what the Lord Jesus Christ did on that cross, that you'll give us a new vision of that cross, Lord, and the price he paid and the love that we owe him, Lord. And I just ask that you'll increase our faith and what he's done so we can more fully appreciate our forgiveness lord and just pour out our love to him i just ask that that's only a work you can do by your holy spirit and i just ask that you'll do that for all of us here and father i just pray that if there is anyone here that is not right with you lord that you'll just speak to their heart today and just press on their heart lord and cause them to turn to you in full repentance and open confession that they can have that burden lifted off their soul lord that you can take that away, you can roll that burden into the depths of the sea and that they can truly know your forgiveness and the cleanness and the fellowship with you, the God that created them. And anyone here, Lord, any of us that are backslidden and not right, I just ask, Lord, that you'll deal with us and cause us to expose that sin in our lives and to make things right, that we can once again in our church, as our brother said earlier, have restored unto us in this body, in our praise, the joy of thy salvation. Amen, Lord. I just thank you that you'll do that, and you've spoken to us today in your Bible, in your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.